moment and take your Bibles, if you've got them, and turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. And the words to which I would call your attention this morning are found in verses 1 through 12 of Matthew chapter 14. I hope you notice that as we sing Rejoice, the Lord is King, it, in, in many ways it's simply a, a restatement of Psalm 2 that we sung last week. Uh, it is a call to all men to call upon the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, in this life, to rejoice, to train your heart and your voice to rejoice in Him. Because He is returning, and this morning, our reflection in Matthew chapter 14 is a reflection on, on a wicked king, a wicked king, Herod. And so let's pick up our reading of Matthew's Gospel in Matthew chapter 14, verse 1. This is the Word of the Lord. At that time... Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths, And his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body. And they went and told Jesus. My soul longs for your salvation. Amen. Please be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. Indeed, it is to us a treasure that is greater than bread. In other words, with the Lord Jesus Christ, if we had to choose to eat or to have your word, we, Lord, would choose your word. And this is not a testimony to anything that, it is, that is in us. It is a testimony to your grace and mercy that have been active in us. Father, we are no better than any in this world, any that have been, any that are, any that will be. The only thing that has made the difference in us, if there is any, is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is that we are covered by His blood. And so now, as we come to Your Word, Father, seeking to feast upon it, we ask that You would feed us, just as You fed Your people in the wilderness uh, all those years ago. Would You feed us now, feed our souls, so that we might be faithful to You. We pray in Christ's name and for the sake of His glory. Amen. Well, here we come to Matthew chapter 14, verse 1, and 
And there's uh, this moment where the death of John the Baptist sort of interrupts the flow of the whole narrative of of Matthew's gospel. Just notice with me how uh, things are proceeding here as we go back to Matthew chapter 13. And we remember in verse 57, and, and they took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And here... Seemingly in an odd spot, Matthew inserts this narrative about the death of John the Baptist. And so there's sort of just a literary purpose for this. It moves us from the end of 13 to Matthew 14, 13, uh, because we continue with Jesus' ministry there. And so we could, in your reading, you could just pass over this and say, okay, well, John the Baptist died. And that, that helps us to understand why Jesus left Nazareth and went off. He withdrew out into this wild place, into a desolate place by himself. It, it simply explains why that happens. But there's another aspect of this story that piques our interest. It sounds, it sounds a lot like the narratives that we read in the Old Testament. You think, for instance, about the relationship between the prophet and king that is so prevalent throughout First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, that prophet and king relationship that's so prominent there. You think the, of the powerful account of David and Nathan in Second Samuel chapter 12, where Nathan, in that bold moment, with courage, came before King David and said, you are the man. Establishing the expectation that even the king of Israel was responsible to submit to the law of God. You think of the antithesis of that account in Ahab and Jezebel and Elijah. When Elijah was on the run in the wilderness, his life being at risk. This happens over and over and over again. Well, in Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 to 12, we find the relationship between Herod and John the Baptist was like the relationship of Ahab and Jezebel and Elijah. And what we see here is an important case study in the character of those who hate God's law. They are ruled, as it were, by the pursuit of pleasure rather than the pursuit of God's pleasure. And so this morning, I think the question for us is to, as a self-reflection, whose dominion are you under? Are you under Christ's dominion? Do you live for His pleasure? Are you under Satan's dominion and live to please people? Well, what we see in this passage are what I've called five characteristics of lawless men. Lawless men have no fear of judgment. They hate God's law. They are pragmatic, manipulative, and they are undisturbed by violence. Notice as we come back to the passage here, Matthew chapter 14, just a a few things about our context. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 2, remember that back there it was reported to us that John the Baptist had been imprisoned. So this is right before Jesus begins to preach and he pronounces the woes upon the people. And John the Baptist's disciples came to Jesus and they said, we have some questions for you. Are you the one or do we look for another? 
And it was in that moment that Jesus exalted the faith of John the Baptist who believed on him. John the Baptist, we remember, was a faithful proclaimer of God's Word. He was a courageous man. In fact, in verse 4, the people had taken him for a prophet. As we remember in Matthew 11, Jesus said to the people, what do you come out to John the Baptist looking for? Are you looking for a reed that is shaken by the wind? In other words, are you looking to him for entertainment? Do you come out to him to see a prophet? And Jesus said there, yes, and more than a prophet. And quoting Isaiah, he said, this is the forerunner of the Christ. But the focus of Matthew 14, verses 1 to 12, is not really on John the Baptist, is it? In this moment, Matthew takes us, as it were, into the very inner bedchamber, the inner council of Herod himself, so that we will look at him and notice the kind of character that this man had. And he illustrates the animosity that there is between Christ's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. I want you just to notice something with me as we, as we get into this. Notice with me verse 4. What instigates this entire scene is the preaching of John. In verse 4, because John had been doing what? Saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her. Now the her in this account is Herodias. It, prior to this, she had been the wife of Herod's brother Philip. And together with his other brothers, they had been made the rulers of the region of Judea and Galilee. And they, their father before them had been the ruler of the entire land under Caesar. But now it had been divided so that Herod is a tetrarch. And apparently, in this moment, they had come to share a wife. The wife who formerly belonged to Philip now belonged to Herod, the namesake of his father. And you can see John, perhaps in Herod's eyes like a gnat, repeatedly coming before him and saying every moment that he had the opportunity, Herod... You are violating God's law by being married to your brother's wife. This is not lawful. You are subject to the law of God. You must obey it. And what is the result? Well, Matthew tells us, Herod wanted to put him to death. Herod shows us that every man is ruled by something. Even here, a king, given all of this authority over all of this region, he is still subject to the desires of his flesh, even as a king. And he illustrates, Herod does, the man who is ruled by his flesh, not by the Spirit of Christ. And the first thing that we notice about him is that he is unaffected by the judgment. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. This lawless man is unaffected by the judgment. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work with, 
within him or in him. And, and what we begin here with is, is Matthew is showing you what's happening in the present before we go into a little bit of a flashback, and then he will end in the present again. Herod hears a report about Jesus' ministry. All of his miracles and his teaching have come to his ears, and he hears about it. And his conclusion is, listen, because there was such similarity, such likeness between the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Christ, that he concludes that Jesus is simply John the Baptist reincarnate. He's come back from the dead. Jesus preaches the same message of John, but his ministry is accompanied by these supernatural works. So his conclusion then is John the Baptist must have been resurrected. But even though Herod heard the message, he continued to ignore it. Notice that his conscience perhaps is pricked. He remembers what he has done. But I think the interesting thing about this is what Matthew doesn't say. This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work within him. And you might think that in that moment, uh, Herod's response would be, bring him back. This man who has been raised from the dead, I need to hear from him. But he continues to ignore. Even in death, what we see is that John the Baptist's words haunted Herod. Why is that? Why is he so concerned with what John said? Why does it prick his conscience to this degree? And this reminds us that all men all men have a sense of eternal judgment. You, you know that. All men have a sense of eternal judgment. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 reminds us that, that eternity is imprinted upon the heart of man. Every man, no matter how vehemently he might deny it, knows that there is a life to come. He knows this. He knows that he has a soul that was created to live forever. And, and Herod illustrates this. John's resurrected. Surely this is him come back. And yet his craving for sin and rebellion is more powerful than any appeal to life. He knows that he will be accountable to a sovereign God. But he will not turn. He will not change. He will not repent. And we're reminded that the only thing, listen, the only thing that can penetrate the heart of man is the Word of God in the hands of the Spirit of God. No miraculous event. Simply the Word preached. And when that is rebuffed, there is no hope for that man. I want you to turn over, just as a reminder, to turn over with me to Luke chapter 16 for a, a similar account. You remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus, the poor man, died and went to Abraham's bosom where he was hid in Christ. The rich man died and he went to hell, as it were. He was submersed beneath the flames and he spoke to Abraham, and I just want to pick up with you in verse 27 of Luke chapter 16, and remember what he says. Uh, suddenly his heart, his affections, turned back to his brothers. 
In verse 27, and he said, then I beg you, Father Abraham, to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Isn't this what we see in Herod in this moment? He's heard the word. He's rejected the word over and over and over and over again. He will not relent. And even though the smell of judgment is in his nostrils, he will not turn away. The only thing that can penetrate his heart is God's word. The second thing that we see about this lawless man is his disinterest in God's law. Notice with me verses 3 and 4. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. John had been preaching over and over and over to Herod the law of God, and he's not just isolating his concentration to the Ten Commandments, saying these are the general laws that all men are subject to. No. He goes to the very judicial law of God and saying, you, Herod, are subject to it all. You must keep it all. This has authority over you. You might think that John is being provocative. Doesn't he just need to say it once? Isn't that enough? But I want you to notice this. John here in this moment demonstrated the sincerest love for Herod that he had probably ever experienced in his life. How is that? Because John demonstrated a concern for Herod's soul. He may have been the only man who had the boldness of all of Herod's counselors to come to him and say, Herod, you are subject to God. Your soul is at stake. Turn. So John preaches the law to him, but the law is rejected. Herod's response is hatred. And for you and me, this is a good reminder that the only reason, if there is a love for the law of God within us, the only reason for that is that Christ has been gracious to us and enabled us to love it. The psalmist in Psalm 119 prays and he says, Lord, open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your law. Why would he pray that? Because by nature, how does he see God's law? How does he see obedience to God as a king? as something that weighs him down and holds him back. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who enables us in His grace to submit to the law of God. This is the work of the Spirit through the Word. It is Christ who enables us not just to submit as a trudgery, as a drudgery, but to go on and to rejoice in God's law. 
Remember, not as a means of attaining righteousness. It's not for the Christian that way to come in and say, well, well, I am better than this person. I've kept all of the law. I've checked all the boxes. Because honestly, we would say, I love it, but I never keep it the way that I want to keep it. But I delight in it as a means of glorifying God. And it isn't that we delight in law-keeping per se, but like loving children, like loving children, we delight to obey our Heavenly Father as a response of praise. But Herod, as the lawless man, he's not fazed by eternal judgment, He hates the law of God. And what we notice about him as well is that he's a pragmatic man. He's not a principled man. Pragmatic simply means that he's he's led by his flesh in every single moment. He determines his morality by what's best. We see this in the church today, don't we? Those who are fearful of what the culture says about them. And so they put their finger in the air and they test the way that the wind is blowing and whichever way it blows, that's the way they're going to go. That's pragmatism. Weighing every decision rather than by principle. Notice, and I think this is a major point of this passage, notice these two moments where Herod experiences internal conflict. First of all, in verse 5. And though he wanted to put him to death, do you see what it says there? He feared the people. How did Herod fear the people? Well, it says because they held John to be a prophet. And you see how he's making his decision. Even though he hated John and looked upon his preaching as an evil thing, why would he not put him to death? Because of principle? No, because he's a politician. And he feared the people. He feared that there would be an uprising in the land that they would turn against him and then Caesar would take his power away. He'd stop receiving the taxes of the people and living on their dime. There's a second moment of internal conflict for Herod. Look at verse 9. And the king was sorry. The king was sorry that Herodias' daughter had asked for John the Baptist's head. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded John's head to be given. You see that again. John makes a rash vow, the Scriptures would call it. In the moment, he says, like, King Ahasuerus and Esther, and he says, ask me for anything up to half of my kingdom, and I'll give it to you. And then when she does... He realizes the rashness of his vow, but rather, listen, rather than relent and say, that was foolish of me, I won't give you that. On principle. He does it, why? Because of his oaths, notice again, and his guests. What is Herod interested in here? Why didn't he put John the Baptist to death to begin begin with? Because of the people. Why does he put John the Baptist to death now? Because of the people. You see what kind of a man he is. He's always looking for the popular vote. What do the people say? 
That's what I'll say. And here, this is an important reminder for you and me that a couple things. If you live for the praise of people, one, you're always going to be disappointed. People are fickle. And they turn on you like a dog, like a dog as Jesus would say earlier in Matthew 7. Their praise is fickle. One day they will mention you in their social media tweets in praise and high praise, and the next day you're nothing to them. But if you live for the praise of people, you will not live for the praise of God. As we see in Herod, there's no principle in him. But God calls you and me to live a principled life, not a pragmatic life. A principled life, not a pragmatic life. A life that is set like the man who builds on stone, on the firm foundation. The man who lives the steadfast life on the principles of God's Word. Not because they seem like wisdom to us. Not because they bring praise to us. But because they bring praise to our all-wise Savior. Christ is your King. People are not. And as we are sanctified by the grace of God through the Holy Spirit, the praise of people becomes less important. This is what Herod did not experience. Because for the believer, what praise is supremely important is the praise of Christ. That at the end of your life, you might hear him say, well, good, well done, my good and faithful servant. Here I'm, I can't help, and you maybe too, can't help but think about Martin Luther in 1518, standing there before John Eck and his judges. He had written 95 theses against the indulgences of the Roman Catholic Church, and, and just almost as a... Um, as an invitation to a conversation, nailed those 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Castle. And Luther famously said later, I would never have thought that such a storm would rise from Rome over one simple scrap of paper. But Luther's words are so powerful in that moment. Remember that they had called him so that they might sit in judgment asking him to burn his books and on the first day, Luther said, let me go and think about it. I think in that night, he had a sincere wrestling of conscience, asking the Lord, have I, have I said the right things? Have I interpreted your word the right way? And Luther came back the next day. And you know what he demonstrated? He demonstrated that Christ's grip on him was greater than any man's. And he said this, my conscience is captive to the word of God Thus I cannot and will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. And in this moment, don't you see that, John the ba or that, that Martin Luther is simply walking in the footsteps of all the prophets before him? Of Jeremiah, of Elijah, of John the Baptist, who before the Pharisees would say, who called you to repent, you brood of vipers? Who warned you about the judgment to come? Who would stand before a king and say to him, your marriage is not lawful. This is all that Luther was doing. As a man of principle, 
This is what the people of God do. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Fourthly, we notice that there's a manipulative nature in this scene with Herod and Herodias and the daughter. Look with me at verse 8. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. Now this takes a little bit of of consideration. In verses 3 to 5, you can imagine that, that perhaps Herod and Herodias both were there listening to the preaching of John the Baptist and hearing him say, your marriage is not lawful. You're in sin. You need to repent. You need to do this the right way and honor God. And you can perhaps hear Herodias leaning over to her husband and saying, that man needs to be put to death. You kill that man. I don't want to hear from him anymore. You think of Jezebel, don't you? And, and Ahab and Naboth's vineyard. She wanted his vineyard. She wanted his grapes. She wanted his wine. And he wouldn't sell it to her. So she went to her husband, Ahab, and she said, I want Naboth's vineyard. And so they conspired together to get it by blood. And they had Naboth killed. Well, uh, Herodias doesn't get what she wants to begin with because, remember, Herod is a pragmatic man. He's not a principled man. And so he, he puts his finger in the air and he says, well, what do the people say? And he won't put him to death. But Herodias is undeterred. She will get what she wants. And how does she accomplish this? Well, she waits. and She sees the right opportunity She hears Herod say, I will give you whatever you ask. And so she draws her daughter close and she says, ask him for the head of John the Baptist. She knows that she has him. And she uses this moment to her own advantage. And for the lawless man, what we find is even... even relationships become a means to an end, don't they? We have relationships with people not to serve them, but to be served by them. The manipulative man is the one who says, if I don't get my way, I will not stop until I obtain it, and I will use whatever means necessary to get it. I'll wait till my parents go to sleep so I can get that cookie. The manipulative man sees people as a barrier to happiness when they don't please him. But Christ's work in us leads us to serve others even as he did. How? Because you recognize that Christ gave His life to reconcile you to His Father. And when did He do that? He did that when you were still His enemy. When you were walking in your rebellion against Him. So that the one in whose death you and I would have delighted with that crowd of people gathered there with Pilate and the Pharisees, the one in whose death you would have delighted, he died so that you might delight in his life. Fifthly, 
The lawless man is undisturbed by, by violence. I think this is a striking scene here at the very end in verses 10 to 11. Just think about this for a moment. Herod sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And before all the guests, before the blood had cooled from his brain, John's head was brought on a platter. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, Herodias' daughter, and she brought it to her mother. Now, can you imagine this scene? Here's this girl holding a man's head on a platter. Now, there's no, no indication that this was a politely covered platter. It's simply there, perhaps served with lettuce and tomatoes, and given to them. Can you imagine this young girl walking, as it were, to give this to her mother as a gift? Herodias' daughter held John the Baptist's head in her hands and presented it. Is that a striking scene? You, you wonder to yourself, how could someone be comfortable holding a man's head in her hands and giving it to someone else? The scriptures remind us over and over that the lawless man is not disturbed by violence. In fact, as we go to Proverbs, consider the words of Proverbs chapter 8, verses 35 to 36. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. So you look on our culture and you think, well, how, how can people take any comfort in killing others? How can our society, how can our culture be so violent? How can men love killing one another? Because this is what's bound up in the heart of a man. He loves violence. Consider Proverbs chapter 10, verse 6. Uh, Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. It's repeated in Proverbs 10, 11. Lawless men are undisturbed by violence. In fact, in the depth of their depravity, they, they love it. They love death. And you can see this, can't you? The opposite of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is Satan's kingdom, the kingdom of life, and the opposite of that is the kingdom of death. Why do men love death? Because they are ruled by Satan and their own desires. Lawless men have no fear of judgment, hate God's law, are pragmatic, manipulative, and undisturbed by violence. And in Matthew 14, verses 1 to 12, I think we would be remiss from mentioning this one thing, that a godly man, think of this, a godly man, the forerunner to the king himself and our savior was ended by a wicked king. And you and I read this and we think, well, this is just the same old story. This is side B of the record that we've already listened to. Godly man after godly man, Elijah, Jeremiah, all of them, all of them put to death by wicked kings. His voice is silenced. His ministry was ended. And what do we think? What's going to happen to the other man? Who is so similar to John that Herod thinks he's John Come back to life. To us, it appears 
that the Christ-loving, law-abiding man ultimately succumbed to the lawless man, and we're going to see that again. But as we sang this morning, we serve a victorious king, the king of kings, into whose hands we are committed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we reflect on these words, we do so as in a mirror. We don't look upon Herod as a man who is unlike all of us, but as we look upon Herod, we can, can each of us see, well, there's aspects of me in that. But Lord Jesus, You are not like Him at all. You love justice. You love the law of God. You live by the law of God. It is your bread. You are principled. Lord Jesus, you, you serve. You're a tender and a kind and a loving Savior who bent down low, very low, so that you might raise us up out of the dust and give us life. Men and women and children who deserve nothing of the good things of this life. You tenderly call your people to yourself as a savior, not a manipulator. And Lord Jesus, you love life. And you love to give it. And so we exalt in who you are. And ask, O oh Lord, that you would bless us. Continue to conform us to your own image. We pray in your name. Amen.